Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Welcome to BenaiShalom.tv. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. From our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week. Here with our B'nai Shalom broadcast, we like to set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings, and we worship the Lord with praise and worship, and we hear the word of the Lord from the weekly Torah portion. Thank you for joining us each and every week. A couple of announcements that we have going on right now here. It is February 20th right now uh, in 2019. Uh, we're encouraging everybody, if you're looking to join us for our um, Feast of Shavuot gathering, our uh, conference that is going taking place in Dallas, Texas on June 7th through 9. Um, if you have not registered for that, we encourage you, anybody who are, is in the Oklahoma, North Texas area, uh, to get signed up for that. We're going to have a wonderful uh, event there in North Texas. Go to ShavuotEvent.com and you can register your family there. If you have already registered, we encourage you to make your accommodations with the hotel. Once again, all the information is on ShavuotEvent.com and we look forward to seeing all the brethren uh, that will we will meet there. Also, very exciting announcement, our uh, Feast of Tabernacles, our big event that takes place in the fall, is opening up, registration for that is opening up March 1st. So pay attention to that when that goes live. Uh, you can register at tabernaclesevent.com, and we're looking forward to another amazing uh, feast there. Our theme for this year is Faith, Hope, and Miracles, and we hope to uh, encourage the brethren with all the special guests teachers that will be there encouraging everybody in their faith and continuing to build their confidence in their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the almighty creator of heaven and earth and all the miracles that he has performed in our lives. So we look forward to seeing everybody at the Feast of Tabernacles coming up this fall. And so registration is opening up for that very soon. And uh, we encourage your families to all to you to sign up your family. And we hope to see everyone there. Uh, for right now, let us set apart this service with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Once again, thank you for joining us here at BeniShalom.tv. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we welcome in the Sabbath. Elohim, 
who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now, <coughs> bless you. Now the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now the Chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wives that you have given to us. We thank you for giving us wives of Proverbs, Lord. Father, I pray that you would pour out a special blessing upon my wife this Sabbath day. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all the things that she does here in our household. As she takes care of the children, as she teaches them and educates them, as she takes care of our home, I pray, Lord, that she knows how valuable she is and how her worth is far above jewels. I thank you for the wonderful blessing that she is to me, to our children, to our household, and I pray you pour out a special blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. And now we will bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now we bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And grant you peace, and may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha, Nedahar Bachodesh. No Ratechil. 
Lord, oh, save Have a blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, la-drotam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael, ot-hit le-olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aretz v'yom ha-shavi, Shabbat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Mahuto, Leolam Vayed, Yeshua Hamashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha, v'shinantam l'avenecha, V'tepardabam v'shivtecha, v'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech u'shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totavot b'inenecha, u'chetatam ha'mozuzo b'techa, uv'sharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Do I have a doubt that kept my forefathers out? Can I make it past the curse? Will my heart be sure when I stand at the door? Will I need my eyes to see? Oh, I don't know. Don't let me stumble or fall. Let me have no doubt that will keep me out of the promise you have for. Sometimes I'm sure that you're at the door. Then doubt comes over me. When the shofar sounds, will I step out? Will I need my ears to be? Will I need my ears to believe? Oh, I don't know how I plead. Have mercy on me. Don't let me stumble or fall. Let me have no. Oh, y'all touch my eyes that I may cry. Let my tears fall at your feet. Oh, y'all break my heart so I will start to trust you and be. To trust you and believe. Oh, I don't know how I plead. Have mercy on me. Don't let me stumble or fall. Let me have no. Of the promise you have for me, of the promise you have for.
below the mountainside With the beautiful blue sky and the fluffy white clouds Floating above the mountain Yeah, I have shown the path through the woods of sparkling water are also Yah has shown the path through the woods of sparkling water are also beautiful. Yeshua, you made me. I can see and I can speak. I can breathe and I can smell of your creation. How lovely your creation is. You took care of me. When I was small, when I was sick Now I know that I am healed and no one can tell me different Your has shown you the path through the woods The sparkling water are oh so beautiful has shown you the path Are oh so beautiful. Oh, yeah, I ask that you help me heal the broken heart. For the time that I was given, I'm as happy as ever. But I know that I have my time has come, and I will not be afraid. Yah has shown you the path through the woods of sparkling water are oh so beautiful. Yah has shown you the path through the woods of sparkling water are oh so beautiful. Keep me to your to the book of Exodus to chapter 30. Hold your finger at verse 11 where our Torah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'charbanu mekol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atarunai nonten ha-torah ha'amein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. 
Our Torah portion this week is entitled Kitisa, which uh, comes from, if we begin reading at verse 11 in Exodus chapter 30, it says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, when you number them, and they may... And there may be no plague among them when you number them. This phrase, when you take up a census, is the word, phrase and the word that we get, kitisa, the title of our Torah portion. What it literally means in the Hebrew is when you lift up or when you elevate. See, in the process of taking a census, what you do is you normally count the heads. And you look up and you see and you take up a census. What the children of Israel did here instead is that each person gave a half shekel to do this numbering. And so they took up this offering. And then instead of counting the heads of the people, they instead counted the number of half shekels to then they knew how many people were counted in the census. Now, this phrase, when you lift up or when you elevate, this is a theme throughout our entire Torah portion for this week. This is the longest Torah portion in the book of Exodus. There are so many stories and layers and things. This is, one, once again, another one of my favorite Torah portions because there's so many different avenues and things that you can study. But it's fascinating to see this idea of elevating something is a theme throughout this entire portion. Um, we will have in our instruction, let me give a quick summary for our Torah portion this week. We'll have the instruction for the taking up of this census through the use of a silver half shekel. Then we'll have the instruction for the bronze laver, which is was used for the cleansing of the priests and during their service in the holy place. We will then also have the recipe for the holy anointing oil. And anointing oil, as I described before, when it came to the anointing of the high priest, that you would elevate the status of a person when you anoint them. And so the high priest was the anointed one, the Messiah-like figure, Mashiach, which means the anointed one, and that he was clearly elevated above all of the other children of Israel and also above the work of all of the other priests. So anointing oils very uh, is used when it comes to elevating the status of someone. Then we'll have the recipe in this Torah portion also for the incense. Obviously, when that was burned on the golden altar in the holy place, that was lifted up before the before the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Then we will also have the instruction given by God to naming by name several young men in the congregation of Israel, men by the name of Bezalel and Aholiav, and the Lord will elevate them to the status of being the ones who are going to be the crafters, the constructors, the artisans that build the tabernacle, and he's elevating them above all the congregation of Israel. Then we will have the story, this is the portion, portion is most famous for having the story of the sin of the golden calf. Obviously the mistake of the children of Israel is that they elevated a golden idol to be equal to God and they worshipped this idol as opposed to worshipping the one true God. So it's possible to elevate something However, they did so in an unworthy manner. They elevated an idol to be equal with God, and that was obviously a mistake. And then we will have a whole lot of instruction that will, in which Moses will plead with God when God has punished and said to the children of Israel, because of the sin of the golden calf, he says, I will not go into the land with them because of this sin. We then have Moses pleading with God, and also in our Torah portion, we, Moses will receive the instructions 
of the 13 attributes of mercy or the 13 attributes of God. And so there's a whole deal of instruction with that. The covenant will again be renewed after the sin of the golden calf, culminating with the end of our Torah portion at the end of chapter 34, where Moses will, he will be elevated amongst the children of Israel that after meeting with God, his face will shine so brightly that for the rest of his life, he will have to wear a veil amongst the children of Israel because his face and his skin showed the brightness and the glory of God. And so there's this status change of even the physical appearance of Moses is elevated in a way. So this theme of elevating something is throughout our entire Torah portion. As I said, there's so many different areas and avenues that we can go into. What I hope to do is, of course, bring out the highlights and some of the things that encourage me when I study the word. And I hope that it would be an encouragement to you on this week. So going back now to this idea of taking up a ransom. In my New King James, it reads that when they take up this census, that they are to give a ransom for each person. And as I said in that very first verse, it says that for himself, you give this ransom to the Lord so that there may be no plague among them when they're numbered. Kind of an interesting phrase there as this is being described. That Hebrew word for ransom is kofur. And it's the same Hebrew word. It's very similar to kafar, which it means a covering. It's the same Hebrew word where we get the word atonement. And it is specifically in this passage is where we make the connection between silver representing the atonement for something. See, the children of Israel will do this. They will give a half shekel for each person. Now, this is not a shekel as in the modern day state of Israel uses the uh, currency known as a shekel, which is equal to about a quarter in American currency. Well, in the ancient times, this shekel was a weight. It was a weight of measure that you would use to measure out an amount of silver. And this silver was gathered up. And so then it was also used in the construction of the tabernacle, and we'll go into the details of that in next week's portions, where we will talk about the final construction of the tabernacle and what the silver was used for. But this idea that the silver is being given, a weight of silver is being given to represent each person, and that it is to protect them, so to speak, of that there might not be a plague among them. Kind of an interesting thing. Okay, so you mean if I don't give this shekel, then I'm going to get sick or something is going to come against me? Well, that is kind of the wording that is being given here. Because if you think about it, what is atonement? Atonement is one of these things, it's one of these very spiritual words that we use that when we're talking about that the Lord has forgiven us of our sins and that we then have atonement. What is what is that exactly does that mean? Now this ties into all the instruction that we know about Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and that was an instruction that's given to the children of Israel, a specific holiday for atonement that represents a covering. That it almost is the covering of God. It's the payment made to where that we are protected from something. Obviously, all the sins that we ever commit, sins can produce curses that come upon us and that can actually cause harm to us. So what we need is we need atonement to so that we might be protected from those things. Each person in this ransom or the census that was to be taken, every single person was to give exactly one half shekel. It says that they are not to get that a rich man shall not give more, a poor man shall not give less. Each person is to give one half shekel. 
it's an interesting uh, dynamic that we can discuss and talk about how this idea of atonement is for any person, whether they're rich or poor, and it's also, it doesn't matter what your status might be, you either have atonement or you don't. Every person wants to give the exact same amount. It's one of those things also when it comes to if you have atonement for your sins, you either have it or you don't. It's kind of like being pregnant. You can't be partially pregnant. It's like you either are or you're not. And sometimes we mistakenly go into the, to the festival and the holiday of Yom Kippur, and we go in and we look at our sins and we reflect on the sins that we've committed for throughout the year and we stop and we think man you know it's like oh this year was just really hard and and i kind of sinned maybe a little bit more this year than i did the previous year and so going into yom kippur man i i just really need to go in and pray hard because i i need a lot of atonement this year maybe as opposed to previous years that is a fallacy for us to look and reflect upon our sins for the year when we approach the holiday of Yom Kippur. That we are looking at it and then it says, oh man, we, you know, I really need, I really needed Yom Kippur this year. Well, actually, you need it no matter what. Because you need atonement for the minor sins, the big sins, a lot of sins, the little sins. You either have atonement or you don't. And that's why we need to refocus our mindset as we as we approach the fall holidays. Our feast cycle is about to start back over for this year. But as we approach the holidays, we need to maybe correct some of these understandings that we have, especially when it comes to the Feast of Yom Kippur and what actually the fast of Yom Kippur, I should say, and what it really means and represents. So this idea of atonement, we either have it or we don't. Again, it's to protect us from something. That same word, kofar, that represents a ransom or a covering, it's the same wording and same word used in Genesis 6:14, where it talked about Noah building the ark and having to cover it with pitch. This whole idea of that this covering is something that was very necessary. If Noah had built this ark and did not have this kofar, this covering over the ark, that ark was not going to work. It was going to sink and everyone was going to drown. This is the kind of thing that we should actually think about when we're thinking of atonement. It's like, look, we have a plan and a purpose that God has given us and called us to do. And we might have a calling, just like Noah had a calling, to build an ark and to float it because there was going to be a great flood and to preserve all of life on this planet through that work. However, if he didn't have the atonement, the covering, the pitch on that ark, he was not going to be able to do his job correctly. That is a one way that we can look at what atonement does for us is that we have a plan, we have a purpose, we have life that we're trying to go and live. We kind of need that atonement, that, over, that, that covering. And you know, sometimes it's not something you see. I guarantee you Noah didn't really see the, the pitch and the, and the waterproofing layer that put on the outside of the ark. But once he was living inside the ark, he sure was good and glad that he had it. In the same way that when we live our life, knowing all the things that might be coming against us, we pray the Lord, thank the Lord for the atonement that we have, because the Lord is in the process of constantly covering and protecting us from those things that might come against us. One other interesting fact about this idea is like, why was the commandment given for the children of Israel to give a half shekel per person? Why not a whole shekel per person? Well, one thing is when you, I like to just think of it this way. If ever you have the half of something, don't you kind of wish you had the whole thing? 
Whenever you have half of something, it's all like, man, it will, it, of course it would be better if I had a whole. If I have a half dollar, man, or if I had a whole dollar, it would feel a lot better. This concept and idea it causes us to think that it's better for us to be paired with somebody else. It's not good for man to be alone. So as each man gave a half shekel to represent themselves, it probably caused them to think, you know what, I'm giving a half shekel, but I look around and I see my fellow brethren. I'm sure glad that I'm here with them. As we continue to put our half shekels together, well, me and my best friend, we come together and we make a whole shekel and every single person coming together. And what you see is you see that we are better when we work together than if we are separate and apart. So this whole concept of using a half shekel as opposed to a whole shekel might cause us to think of that or remember that. Um, one of the other things that's instructed here, continuing on in, in chapter 30 of Exodus, the instruction for the creation of the bronze laver. This is going back to things that are needing to be built for the tabernacle of God. Once again, we're building the house of God so that he might dwell within the hearts of the people, and amongst the children of Israel as they journey in the wilderness. This bronze laver had a very important purpose. It sat between the bronze altar where the burnt offerings were given in the outer court, between that altar and the entrance into the sanctuary and into the holy place. And the purpose of this, this laver, was a, was a giant basin of water so that the priests might wash their hands and wash their feet as they go into the sanctuary to do the service of the sanctuary and the tabernacle. This has a very uh, basic reason for this that makes perfect sense. God wants the people that comes and serves in his house to be clean, to have clean hands, to have clean feet. And we do this in our own households when we call the family to dinner and the kids come in from playing and they sit down at the table and they get ready to eat and their hands are covered with dirt. And what do you tell your children before you're going to sit down and have a meal? Go wash your hands. Very simple concept here that everyone can relate to. That is what the instruction for the priests were to do with this labor. So that they will wash their hands and so that everything will be clean and orderly in the sanctuary of God. God is very specific about how he wants his house to be run. And the priests are the ones who serve in that house and in that tabernacle. And they have a very specific job to do. And God is asking for them to have clean hands and clean feet when they go to do it. Very simple concept. One of the other things that's fascinating about this bronze labor, we'll learn in Exodus 38 at verse 8. That this laver was made from bronze, specifically from the bronze mirrors that were given by all the women of Israel. If you've ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille, one of the things that I love that's historically accurate is that there's a scene in which Nefertiti, the, the queen of Egypt, she is standing in front of a giant sheet of bronze hanging on the wall. And in ancient times, they used bronze as a mirror. It had the highest luster of most metals that had, could be fi found and, and mined and shaped in the ancient times. And it was used as a mirror, and it was very reflective. So when this bronze laver was made, from the mirrors of the women of the household of Israel, it too had this very reflective sheen to it. Also, if you ever have a basin of water, you can look into a pool of water and you can reflect upon and you can see yourself whenever you look into a pool of water. This whole idea of this laver, before the priests went in to do the service of the tabernacle, they were to reflect upon themselves before going in to do the work. 
They could see themselves. They could kind of check themselves out, make sure, you know, they could look at themselves and their face and it's like make sure they don't have any smudge with some blood on it from a sacrifice. And they could make sure they were completely clean before going into that work. Now, what am I really describing here? I'm talking about what we all have to do before we go into the presence of God is to kind of check yourself at the door, if you will, to do some inter, some introspection, looking at yourself to see, am I, is my heart in the right place? Am I presentable before going into the service of the Lord? That's something we all should do, not only physically, that when you go into a congregation or to a fellowship, yeah, you put on Sunday's best, you get cleaned up before you present yourself in that place. But spiritually, you should also reflect upon yourself before you go into the presence of the Lord. And that is the bronze laver causes us to remember that. Not only to be spiritually clean, or not only be physically clean, but to be spiritually clean as well. That we should reflect upon ourselves to make sure there is no ill intent in our hearts, that we are presentable before the Lord. So that is kind of the spiritual meaning of what the bronze labor represents. Then we have at the end of chapter 30 of Exodus, we have these two recipes that are given to us. One for the holy anointing oil and also for the incense that was burned before the Lord. Very fascinating here that these are instructed to us with very specific ingredients. Now, the translations have changed over the years. And so where uh, my New King James says that there was liquid myrrh and sweet-smelling cinnamon and that there was these certain ingredients that were used, that it's like the translation's been lost over time to know exactly what these compounds were. But it is fascinating that the instruction for both of these recipes is that they were only to be used in the sanctuary and not to be used by common man and not to be used amongst the children of Israel for common purposes. The anointing oil wasn't meant to be used for perfume and that the incense was not to be made so you burn it in your own tent. These were specific recipes for what the, what God wanted in his tabernacle. This begs the question, why would we give exact recipes on how to make these things if we're not supposed to make them ourselves? One thing is, is that it was recorded so that it could be done right. So that when the tabernacle was established in the temple later in Jerusalem, when the priests would make these things, we had the record of what God wants in his tabernacle and in his temple. That's why it needs to be exact, because God was very specific about this. It then is also a test for us. If we're going to continue to believe what God has said and follow his commandments to say, we're not to make anything like this. Here's the temptation. All the ingredients are there. You could put them together. You could smell what it smelled like if you wanted to. But are you going to obey the Lord? Are you going to follow his instruction when he says, don't make it for yourself? Are we going to follow that instruction? Of course, many of us, curiosity sometimes gets the best of us. And there have been those that have tried to replicate these things. To which I would caution any believer who follows the commandments of God when it says, don't make anything like it, that's what he means. Don't make anything like it. I know there are other people, there's even essential oil companies that have created blends that are trying to replicate this exact oil. And it is my counsel to everyone that it is, we are not to partake of any oil in any way, shape, or form that is an attempt to copy this recipe. God, this one is for God. This is for him, for his house, in his sanctuary. And it is once again another test for us to determine, 
if we are going to follow what God has said. Now, I know other people can go in and look at some of these possible ingredients that these things could have been. And we know that there is God has a deeper plan and a purpose to all of these things that are being made. And there are healing properties and there are various spiritual and physical properties of these ingredients that we know God has a greater wisdom and a plan for why these ingredients are there. Some of these things are antibacterial, antimicrobial ingredients that we know when this oil was placed on something that there was a healing nature to it. All of these things that were used in the creation of the tabernacle, the silver the bronze all have these scientific and sometimes medicinal properties to them that I believe that God has a greater plan and a purpose to knowing that when you came into the presence of God, that you could be healed of anything that might be coming against him. That it's in this place is when healings could take place. Now, I believe that there's actually possibly a scientific explanation for that based on the materials that were used in the tabernacle. But I don't know if science and religion have quite caught up to each other to know and understand how all that worked together. I look forward to the time in which the Lord might explain this later in the kingdom and might say, look, I was creating these things because all of these things have the power to impact creation in a spiritual way, in a medical way, in a physical way, and that I'm the creator of the whole world and I know exactly what I'm doing. I fully expect the Lord to say that at one point in time. If anybody might ask, hey, Lord, why is exactly, uh, you know, 250 shekels of sweet smelling cane in your uh, in your anointing oil recipe? And God's like, I got this. I have a plan and a purpose and I have a reason for it. If anybody might ask that question. So. So I know people that that might study those things, learn what those ingredients are. But again, caution you, this is not specifically spoken to us to not try to replicate it for ourselves. Now, going into chapter 31, which is only 18 verses, it's kind of a shorter passage of scripture. This is one of my favorite passages, especially comes from this Torah portion where the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and the cutting of jewels for setting the carving of wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. And indeed, I've also appointed with him Aholiav, the son of Asimach of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of the gifted artisans that they may make all that I commanded you. Let me stop there. These are the men that are being called. We, we have had all this instruction for the past several weeks in our tour portions of this is what we're going to create. And then they might beg the question and say, okay, this is some, there's some pretty exacting measurements. You know, we're going to need a master carpenter. We're going to need a, a master uh, person who can work with textiles and weave these fabrics. We're going to need a master jeweler to basically carve the names of the children of Israel in these stones on the breastplate and stones on the shoulders. Uh, and we're going to need some people who have quite a bit of skill to produce these things. Well, the Lord, speaking to Moses, he hands uh, Moses a business card that is the Betzalel design firm and says, here's your guy. Go and hire him. This is the greatest reference that has ever been given in the history of time, that the creator of heaven and earth is telling Moses, hey, this is your guy. Go and hire him, and he's, got, he's going to do the job for you. Very fascinating here. Again, one of my favorite characters of the Bible because of his artistic skill, and that's something that I've always had a passion for myself. And that he was filled with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge. 
the, we could look at this one way in which was this guy actually skilled? Like, is these are things that he maybe learned while he was a slave in Egypt and he maybe already had some of the skill? Or was he miraculously given all of these skills and these talents? We don't know for sure, but one of the things that's very fascinating about this is that all the sages say and agree that these guys, Bezalel and Holioth, that these had to have been very young men based on their lineage and how old they would have been. These would have been very young men, possibly even in their teens. Some sages say specifically that Bezalel was probably 13 years old. Okay, so we have one of the most important building tasks and construction jobs in the history of time. We're going to build the household of God. And oh, by the way, here's your foreman. It's a 13-year-old kid. You might question that. But again, God has bestowed upon him all the wisdom and understanding and knowledge. One of the things that I actually believe is possible is this, is that this guy probably could have been a prodigy. Probably somebody, and you've seen it, you, you'll find uh, people that there are young men and women, sometimes as, as young as 10 and, and 13, that can sit and they can play piano like a master. Or they have some sort of skill set or, or ability that is far beyond their years, and they're a prodigy. They just, it just flows out of them. And you sit there and you're like, man, God really made somebody special here. That's very possible with what these men could have been. Now, it could be now physically we can describe, you know, people with the mental capacity to be a prodigy and work certain things. We also could attribute it to the power of God being just filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding and somebody just being able to do it. I kind of tend to, to believe that there's kind of the, the answer is, is, is both. In both of those cases, yes, the Spirit of God filled them with this wisdom. It's also believed that this Spirit that God put in them is the same Holy Spirit that God used to create the entire world. The imagination that God filled His Spirit into His creation, He puts that same Spirit in a person, and then that person can create amazing things. And that's what we believe about these people, is that they could have created these, these just amazing creations and had all the skill in the world to do this. Bezalel, I love the meaning of his name. It means in the shadow of God. And that he was uh, gifted to create the tabernacle, which was patterned after the tabernacle that's in heaven that Moses saw and witnessed. He wrote down all the instructions, then passed that on to Bezalel, and then Bezalel created it after we have gone through this instruction. And when it's all said and done, after he had created the tabernacle, what he had created was a shadow or a picture of what was in heaven. So even through the meaning of his name, he has created the shadow of God. His father, by the name, his name was Uri, which means light or fiery. And so it's like his father was light, and then he is the shadow of God. It's almost like his father cast light upon what God and what came out was Bezalel, was the shadow or the representation of what God was and is. Again, fascinating things about these men. And um, I... I could go into more of this, but we do have a couple more things we need to get to in our Torah portion. And he's, they're also mentioned in next week's portion, so I might elaborate on those two men a little bit more later. Um, the portion continues if we go to verse 12 of chapter 31. This is where we have reiterated now the Sabbath law. 
that we've given all of this instruction, given to Moses while he's on the mountain receiving the instruction to build the tabernacle. And then God reminds him and says this, speak to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And he continues on. And this is also where we get the Veshamru, the prayer that we pray for Sabbath every single week, where it's talking about that this shall be a perpetual covenant and a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Why is this instruction here? Why is God closing out all of his instruction about the building of the tabernacle and reiterating now the Sabbath law? Well, for one, we know the covenant of Sabbath is a very important covenant. It's the first of the appointed times, and it is the thing that continues. It's almost an anniversary of our covenant between us and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the first anniversary. We have multiple ones throughout the year. And it's not unlike the same way that a married couple has an anniversary that they celebrate every year. And it's a remembrance of the covenant that they have with each other. Just like any other time, the appointed time that God has commanded for us to celebrate or to be a part of, is a commemoration of the covenant that we have with God. And the first of those is Sabbath. It has been with us since the beginning of time, since creation. This was a covenant that even was established with Adam that he celebrated. And this is a perpetual covenant throughout your generations. The Sabbath thing is pretty important. The other thing that I like to bring out is the fact that this is that we close out this instruction of the tabernacle from God to Moses with this iteration of Sabbath. Makes perfect sense to me because of this reason. If God told me and said, Lord, the Lord t- spoke to me and said, I want you to build this. I want you to build this and I want to get you and it's going to do an amazing thing. And I'm filled with it says, such as Bethlehem. He's filled with the spirit of, of imagination. That guy probably couldn't sleep because he was thinking about all the things he was going to build and do and how he was going to make it and how he was going to create it. And what the next thing he was going to work on the next day. And he probably couldn't sleep, couldn't rest with the excitement that he was building the very house of God within amongst the children of Israel and all the people working on it were probably very excited to be doing this but God reminded him you're still to rest even though you might be excited to build these things that God has a calling upon us we are always reminded there still is a time to rest that time belongs to the Lord and we should remember that and focus on that that even though we have an instruction to build and to work and to create There's still six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. I'm sure somebody might have been motivated and said, Lord, there's more to do. I still want to keep building it. No, you will remember the covenant that's been with us since the beginning of time, that you will still rest from your labors in the process of even building something that I have called for it to be built. That's one of the things that, in my mind, makes perfect sense to a wrap-up of the construction of the tabernacle. Exodus 31 closes out in verse 18 where it says this, And when he made, uh, uh, and, and he had made an end of speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is the very last thing that's being described, that he has been given now the tablets of testimony, and this is what he's been talking to him for 40 days and 40 nights, that began all the way back at chapter 24, at the at its verse. 18 where it said he went up into the mountain and he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights this is what i guess he was being instructed on for that time 
Now we go to chapter 32, where we turn our story back to what the children of Israel were doing in the camp, where it said this. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, come, make us gods that shall go before us. And as for Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Forty days, forty nights, they knew there was no food up there, didn't know if there's any water in there. They didn't they probably didn't know if somebody could live for forty days or forty nights without food or water. So they're like, A guy left, I hadn't seen the guy. Where's he been? Where'd he go? And they have grown impatient with the plan and the purpose of what God is doing. Now, one thing I do want to clarify or bring out is that the sages of Israel, the, the Jewish commentators of the Torah, they actually say and believe that this passage about the golden calf is actually out of place in our story. They think that actually what had happened was that this actually took place earlier and that all the instructions of the tabernacle came after the sin of the golden calf. So that then the children of Israel might have something that because they desired something physical to acknowledge in their presence when they built the golden calf, this physical presence of God, they commentate and speculate that then after that, the children of Israel received the instruction for the tabernacle so that there might be something physical in their presence. Now, when you go in and look at that and, and you look at all the reasons and the opinions, it's kind of fascinating how they, how they try to figure all this out. For me personally, this is just my personal stance, I do not believe the book of Exodus is out of order. I do believe that what Moses was receiving the instruction because God's heart was to dwell with his people. God's not giving them a tabernacle so they might have something to satisfy their physical eyes so they might see the presence of God in them. No, God wanted to do that from the very beginning. God was not done speaking when he gave the Ten Commandments and then the children of Israel said, no, we can't hear anymore. God had much more to say. He had the book of the covenant to give and all the laws for us to walk uprightly before him. And he desired to dwell within the people. And I believe there in verse 18 of 31, it explains this is after he had been done speaking with him. And he then he gave him the tablets of testimony, the very written, written by the finger of God, the written contract of the covenant between the God of Israel and his people. Now, the children of Israel, though, They've grown impatient, and now they commit a grave sin. They are not operating with the Spirit of God. These people were not ready to receive the covenant, and they think that the Lord is going to do all of these things in his own timing, or that it's going to happen in their timing, what they think. This is a very interesting thing. If you just look at that first phrase, how did we get to this point with these children of Israel that saw all the wonders in Egypt, that were delivered through the Red Sea, that they were given manna from heaven, water from a rock, deliverance from the enemies of Israel. Come, they've heard the very voice of God, yet they still will commit a sin as clear cut as idolatry, making a graven image. This is one of the things they heard God say, make no graven image. Yet they still will do this. You know, it goes to the idea, the human condition, that we will sin defiantly and willfully even if we've heard the right instruction. We will. We have a tendency of doing it. We've done it for thousands of years. Human condition, we tend to, to do that. Children will do it from a young age, and adults will do it as well. That Even when we've been given the instruction, don't do this, what do we do? We do it. 
So this, sir, one thing, it speaks to that condition. What I like to do is I like to look at the, the very reason of this language that's given to us and see there, somewhere in here is where we maybe make the mistake. Some of these, if we can maybe pinpoint the cause that causes us to maybe sin something as great as making a graven image and worshiping some other god, maybe there's something we could check in ourselves to make sure we don't get to that point. The one that I like to bring out from this first for a couple of verses here in chapter 32 is this. He delayed from coming down the mountain and they gathered together and they said, no, we don't know what's become of him. We go and make this God. They had no patience or long suffering. One of the fruits of the spirit. They didn't have the spirit inside of them that would cause them to say, you know what? I can wait. The Lord is all-powerful. The Lord has done amazing, mighty things. You know what? I can wait on the Lord to do what he's going to do. This is actually a testimony of many people, especially people who have ever felt like they had a calling from God. They have a calling and they have a desire and the Lord has laid on their heart. And sometimes I see this in young people uh, with our youth camps. We have somebody who's young that's all their plan and they're hoping is that they might get married and start a family. But you know what? There might come a time in which they are in their 20s, they're in their mid-20s, their late 20s, and they're not married yet. They don't have any kids. When they had this stirring in their heart, this calling all this time that they were going to be a, a parent and they were going to have a family. However, the thing that all we always have to counsel with those persons that, you know, it's, you know, it's in the Lord's timing. It's in the Lord's timing. The Lord will bring that person when you are ready. Now, a lot of people, we grow, what do we do? We grow impatient. We're like, no, it was supposed to happen sooner than that. And that's what we say, and that's what we argue. And we lack the patience to know, to wait on the Lord when he is in the midst of working on something. That's what many people make that exact same mistake. And it's that small mistake of being impatient that leads to a more grave mistake of leaving the belief of God and going following after other things. Because that's what people do. They say, I don't want to believe in a God that's making me wait this long. If Abraham had done that, that wouldn't have worked out so good for him. Dude had to wait 25 years before his son came. Isaac, his son, then had to wait 60 years before he had a child. This promise of the covenant. It's all like, look, if these guys can wait for a period of time, let that be an encouragement to us to have the same patience. It's that single seemingly small mistake that leads to much greater ones. It also says when, when he said, make us gods to go before us. That Hebrew word there is Elohim. They went to Aaron and they said, make us Elohim. They're already, I mean, they are offending the very idea that this is God. This is what we've been calling the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call him Elohim and you're going to tell Aaron to go and make Elohim. This was an unholy covenant that was being made here. There was a cutting that took place when Aaron did speak back to them and he says, break off the gold earrings that are on the ears of your wives and your children. They literally ripped them from the skin and the flesh of their bodies, causing blood. And it's like the same thing that a cut is present in every other covenant that's formed, whether it be a sacrifice or a circumcision and a bris, or whether it be the breaking of a hymen in a marriage covenant. There is some kind of cut that takes place in every covenant that is formed, and this was an unholy covenant that was being formed with this golden calf. We made an altar to it. They worshipped before this thing. And this thing that they created, that they fashioned, that they, when it says in the Hebrew that they fashioned it, the Hebrew word there is yetzar, which is the same word 
from Genesis 6, 5, where it says that they, the minds of men were constantly thinking of evil. The imagination of men was continually thinking of things that are evil. That word imagination is that same Hebrew word. And so there was nothing but evil associated with this. There's an amazing parallel passage in Isaiah chapter 30 at verse 1 that I love reading. This actually isn't the Haftorah for our portion, but I love making this connection here that the prophet Isaiah gives to us here. Starting at verse 1, hear these words from the prophet Isaiah. He said this, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, but who devise plans, but not of my spirit, but they may add sin to sin, who walk and go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. The trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. They certainly got this God, this molten calf idea from Egypt. You know that place that was judged by all those plagues? That God proved who he was and that those gods were not God. And he certainly, he wiped out all of those other gods. This was some cow god, whether it's Hathor or some other crazy named god that they had back in Egypt. That was some sort of calf god that they molded it and patterned it after. This was the shadow of Egypt that was still lingering in the camp. This Egypt was wiped out. There were no more when it came. When they left, that place was in utter ruins. Yet they trust in this shadow of Egypt rather than trusting in the very advice and the power of God. This also connects back to our portion here where it says who devise devise plans. The Hebrew word there is masecha, which means to, to mold or to shape, to devise. And that's the exact same word all the way back in our portion where it says they made a molded calf, masecha. They devise evil plans in the process of this, trusting in the shadow of Egypt instead of the power of God. That's what they did. So there was, so there's a lot more going on in here than just idolatry. I mean, this is idolatry to the nth degree. We're making an unholy covenant. We're ripping, we're causing blood to be formed, to be cut from our family members. We're building an altar and making offerings to it. And we are devising these plans and completely worshiping another God. And they said in the language here, they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Just complete blasphemy. Now, what happens here is the Lord speaks to Moses here at verse 7 of chapter 32, and he says, Go and get down, for your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And they turned aside quickly out, out of the way which I commanded, and, they, and God is telling them, it's like, you you got to go down. This is what's, uh, your, your people have committed the sin. I, I love this phrasing, it's like, I, I know Moses probably was like, what do you mean by your people? Well, these are my people? Lord, I thought these were your people. My people have sinned? Well, what he's actually also speaking to is that it's, it's the nature of man that has caused these sin to take place. This is what it is. is we've now turned the focus that these are no, now no longer the people of God following the spirit of God, but they're following the spirit of man in the, these things that they are making. Now, Moses pleads with the Lord and he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against these people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt? With great power and a mighty hand, why should the Egyptians speak and say that he brought them out to harm them, to kill them on the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses is understanding this. He's, he's sensing the wrath of God here in this language, in this verbiage, that it's like the Lord is not happy. 
And Moses, immediately, his first call, every single time that any of these things happen, Moses is going to stand in the gap between the wrath of God and the children of Israel. And so he's, so he's pleading with the Lord these things. And so what he does is he does come down the mountain. Now his servant Joshua, he was halfway up the mountain this entire time. And so Joshua, he heard the noise and the things that were coming. And, and when Moses starts to come down the mountain, Joshua, not knowing what to do, he, he Moses is up there, but something's going, going on down here. And he's somewhere in between trying to figure out, you know, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? He sees Moses come down and he says there's a noise of war in the camp. But then Moses, he says to this, he says, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear. It's like it's one thing if there was war in the camp, if there was something that, the, that, that, were, that there was coming against them. But no, what was coming from what was going wrong here was it was coming from within them. It's not an outside influence that's coming against them. It's the sin is resonating from within them and the singing is what they heard. They could hear and sense the spirit of the people that, would, that, they were, that this was an affront to God. Continue reading at verse 19. So it was soon that they came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of, his home, uh, out of his hands, broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they have made, burned it in fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, he said, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of the Lord become hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods to shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now, this... Excuse that Aaron gives right here, you know, it's almost laughable when you think about it. But the thing that I like to relate it back to is this. When the Spirit of God is within somebody, God creates in them a spirit of order and design. The spirit that he puts in Bezalel is somebody who can create something that's very orderly. This excuse that Aaron gives is the complete contrast to that. There was no order to it. It was nothing but chaos. I took this gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came this thing. The Spirit of God is not within Aaron as he's giving this comment back to Moses. And so one of the things also that's interesting about this, this is going on behind the scenes as to why Aaron seemed to get, you know, he's off the hook for, for this thing when he was the one that made the calf. One person that is missing from this narrative that was mentioned before and has never been mentioned again since is by the name of Her. Her was the other man that was with Moses that was helping to hold his arms up in the battle with the Amalekites. He was, this, he was his right-hand man right there with Aaron. Where was he? When Moses went back up on the mountain, he says, if you have any issues, go to Aaron or go to Her. So where's Her? The sages say, and many of the commentators say, that Her was stoned to death when he stood up, in, stood up to the people who wanted to commit the sin. And they said, make us gods. And he stood up and said no, and he was stoned. That's what the sages say is the story, and I don't think that that's against the biblical narrative. 
that Aaron watched his brother Hur be stoned to death by this mob of people, and then Aaron, out of compulsion, created the, the golden calf so that he might not be killed by this mob of people. Now, I don't know if that makes a, an excuse for Aaron, if that's the case, but we have to remember all the things that might have been going on here. What happens here is Moses says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. He draws a line in the sand and he says, look, if you're on the Lord's side, you come to me. And all the Levites are the ones who stepped up. This is the time in which we can see the Levitical tribe and the Levites elevating themselves and setting themselves apart from the rest of the children of Israel. They all came to Moses' side and he says, take your sword and you're going to go and you're going to slay your brother. Anyone that committed this sin, that sinned, that sacrificed to the golden calf, you're going to kill every single one of them. Now, one of the things that I also love bringing out is that, you know, one of the persons that was here was probably even Korah. Korah, this other guy that we'll talk about in future Torah portions, he was standing right here with Moses and he was doing this same act as well. The people that they're going to go and kill, these 3,000 people that sacrificed to the golden calf, we don't even know what their names were. They've been completely blotted out of the book, as it says in in verse 33 of chapter 32. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. These 3,000 people, we don't have their names. We don't know who they are. This sin was so great, we don't even know their names of who they were. And they've been wiped out from the store, from, from this book. One of the things that's also interesting is this. How did they know which 3,000 sinned? Did they all line up where they were supposed to go? Well, one of the things that's interesting that I always love, uh, I've heard other teachers bring out, is that they, Moses ground this golden calf up, put it in the water, and made them drink it. There is a procedure in Numbers chapter 5 that is the procedure of the bitter waters that happens when a, when a woman had been thought of being adulterous is that she was, there was a procedure for her to go into the tabernacle and to drink what was called the bitter waters. The accusation was put against her. The dust of the tabernacle was put into this water. She was to drink it. And if she was guilty, her stomach would swell and that she would become immediately infertile. And there would be a physical reaction to if she had committed adultery. Now going back to our story here. Same kind of procedure here. The accusation, what they did, the sin they committed is put into the water. They were to drink it and that then, is it possible that the people who did sin had a physical reaction to the drinking of this water? So that immediately the Levites going with their swords could see the ones who were in agony in their stomach, their stomach swelling, something is happening to them. And it is a sign that they were the ones that committed the sin and the sacrifice to the golden calf. Believe it is possible. Now, the narrative doesn't go into that much detail, but we could stop and think that this is one of those hidden miracles of the scripture that it connects to that same that same commandment in Numbers chapter five, talking about the bitter waters and a procedure that was to be done if somebody who was in covenant had been adulterous or had gone off and been unfaithful, which is exactly what the children of Israel were when they made the golden calf. So this is obviously the anger of the Lord grew hot here. And what happened here is the Lord spoke back to Moses and he says, depart, go from here. You and the people you have brought, brought you out of the land of Egypt to the land, which I swore to Abraham. I'm reading for chapter 33 now. 
to, to give to your descendants, and I will send my angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the Hivite. Go into the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you along the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The Lord's not happy here. He tells Moses, Moses, you can take your people and you can go. Uh, yeah, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You're going to go, but I'm not going to go with you. I will send my angel before you. There will be some other messenger that will lead you, but I myself will not go. For you are a stiff-necked people. One of the things I absolutely love bringing out that I've heard a good teacher, Ryan White, I heard him mention this first, is that this is the first time God ever called the Israelites a stiff-necked people. And they had just made a golden calf. And there's a great phrase or philosophy is that you are what you worship. And so if you worship a stone statue or something that is made of gold, then you become like what you worship. And so the children of Israel have become a stiff-necked people, just as an idol is a stiff-necked solid object, and it has no life in it. So fascinating little thing. First time it's ever described as a stiff-necked people. For the people heard this, and they, and Moses, the Lord speaks to Moses, and he says, you, you know, you can go, you can do all these things. And so they stripped themselves, the, the people mourned in the hearing of this. What Moses then did is this, in, in verse 7 of chapter 33, it describes this. He pitched his tent, out, a tent outside camp, and this was, became the tabernacle of meeting. Now, instead of going up on the mountain to meet with the Lord, Moses went into this tent of meeting to meet with the Lord. And Moses went into the presence of the Lord, and he's pleading with him. And it begins here at verse 12, where this is what Moses says back to the Lord. He says this, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know who you will send with me. He hadn't revealed his angel or his messenger to him. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Remember that phrase I said before where God said that your people have done this. What do you mean your people? This is your God. These are your people. And Moses is saying exactly that. Will you consider again that this nation is your people? Not just mine, not just following after, after uh, uh, the, the ways of man, but Lord, that they are your people. And he says in verse 15, it says this, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how will we go? How will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? If you abandon us here in this place then how can we have the testimony that we found grace in your sight? And he goes on talking about, you know, what is the testimony of the children of Israel going to be that you brought us out of Egypt, but then you just left us in the wilderness? That is not the testimony of, of, of this God that's worth worshiping. And so Moses pleading for the sake of the children of Israel, pleading, God, consider them to be your people. Forgive them. Now, what happens here is the Lord speaks back to Moses now in chapter 34, after Moses has made this plea. And the Lord says to Moses this, he says, cut two tablets of stone like the first one. And I will write on, the, on these tablets the words which were on the first tablets which you broke. Okay, so this is now what the procedure is that we're, that we're coming back. Look, God established this covenant. 
He's the one who cut the stone out. He's the one that had said all these things and did all these things. Now he's going back to Moses. And do you see the difference between the first set of tablets and the second set of tablets? The first ones were cut by God. The second ones were cut by Moses. Now, obviously, this would have been kind of a hard task. Like, Moses, go cut two slabs out of that rock. And just be like, okay, that's going to take me a couple of weeks. Chipping all that out. Make sure oh, that one broke. I'm trying to make it. I'm going to have to put some work into this one this time. If I want these tablets to be written by the finger of God and I want this covenant to be established, maybe I'm going to have to put a little more work into it this time. Which is exactly what is the case when it comes to our covenant with God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all broken the original covenant. God tried to establish a covenant with us, and we've all broken it. Now to make restitution, we ourselves have to put the work in to get that covenant reestablished. We have to provide the tablets this time. Now, cutting stone tablets, that's uh, that's not an easy job. It's not easy when it comes to the things that you yourself have to do to put in the work and the effort to have a covenant with God. But we are to provide those tablets. Now, what God really desires, though, is not some two big flat hunks of rock to write his commandments on. It's the same thing where it's all like, look, you know, you have your marriage contract with your wife and you have your ketubah, which is the written agreement between you and and, and your marriage with your spouse. And it's all like, you know what? It's not really about the piece of paper. It's about the meaning of what is on that piece of paper. And it's about the relationship between you and your spouse. It's not just about that. God is not wanting, and I don't think he ever originally established and wanted, to have a covenant that's written on stone tablets that came from some mountain in Saudi Arabia. What he wanted to do is he wanted his covenant written in the flesh of your heart and to have your heart circumcised with his words and his covenant. That's the kind of tablets we're to provide. Tablets of flesh, not tablets of stone. Now, that's actually a lot harder than tablets of stone. Perhaps the tablets of stone, you could stop and think and be like, okay, I could, I think I could work on that. But this whole thing about the flesh, what we're really supposed to do, that takes a little bit more effort, actually. Maybe not physical effort, but it takes a lot more for you to reflect on yourself, to look inside what's inside your heart, who you are, if you're going to be in covenant with God. He wants tablets of flesh, not tablets of stone. And the, but in the same thing, we have to present that to the Lord so that he might write the words of the covenant. Now, is this a different covenant that he originally gave? No. He says right there, very clear. I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets. Look, when it comes to the covenant, which was, co- which was more flawed? The words of the covenant or the people trying to work and establish the covenant? There was nothing wrong with the covenant. God made the covenant. God wrote the words. There was nothing wrong with that. So where is the flaw? The flaw is in the people trying to keep the covenant. So does that mean we're going to change the covenant to accommodate the people? Or do we need to change the people to accommodate the covenant? That's what the change needs to be. There have been many teachers that have come later talking about all the covenants that are in the book in our bible and talking about we have this covenant here and this covenant here and then we have this new covenant here and people say and talk about how that first covenant that was too hard for the people to do so we had to build a new covenant we had to change the words and simplify it and we had all these commandments in this one covenant and then we had this other covenant that only has two commandments so it's easier for the people to do 
Is that really the spiritual principle that we're drawing here? Absolutely not. The covenant was not flawed. The people were. So what needs to change? Not the covenant to accommodate a flawed people, because then you're in covenant with somebody that's flawed. No, he calls for us to be a walk in a higher standard, to be a holy people as he is holy. It is the people that have to change. We must always look at that and understand God is perfect. His plan is perfect. His covenant is perfect. We have to conform to it. We are the ones who have to present a heart of flesh and have have the Lord carve into it his covenant. Believe you me, the rocks do not like to be engraved. It kind of chips away some of the chunks and pieces or whatever and has potential to actually crack and hurt the whole thing. Just like a heart probably hurts to become a circumcised heart in the same way that then that is to me. That's the connection between presenting tablets of the fleshy heart and having a circumcised heart. Kind of the same thing. Something sharp is being cut into it. That's what it means to have a circumcised heart is to have the covenant written upon your heart. We have to be the one that provides those tablets. Chapter 34 continues on with the 13 attributes of mercy that God has given, where God speaks these things, and God, Lord, it descends, and he's, the Lord passes over him, and he says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Immediately Immediately upon hearing this, check this out, verse 8. So Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, I pray, go amongst us. Even though we are a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity, our sin, and take us as your inheritance. God said, This is who I am. These are the laws I'm going to follow. I will be merciful, I will be gracious, and I will pardon iniquity, transgression, and sin. And he's like, but I'm not going to leave the guilty unpunished. Moses says, there's my in. Makes haste, bows his head and says, have mercy on us. You've just laid down the law of who you are. And Moses immediately does this amazing thing. He prays back to God what God has said. God cannot refute his own words. The things that he has said, the promises that he has made. He will not refute those things. So if you can pray back the promises that God has made and the things that God has spoken about himself, then you can speak back to the Lord. And this is how you can plead for the mistakes and the iniquity that had been committed. So this is one of the this is the kind of the point in which Moses and the Lord, we have now come to an agreement. Moses is going to bring the tablets. God is going to act justly in this way. And then Moses says, that's what we'll do. You will be merciful. You've said that you will be. And we pray that we found grace in your sight and that you might be merciful. Immediately following that, the Lord says, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as I have not done on the earth nor in any nation. And it continues on reconfirming the covenant that God has made with the instruction 
of the, uh, with the children of Israel. There's some commandments here reiterated not to make a molten God. There's the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's instruction for that the firstborn of all belongs to the Lord. Six days you shall work. And so there's then this, this microcosm, these, this chunk of wording that reconfirms all the establish, all the things in the covenant that have already been established. And the covenant is reaffirmed with Moses at this time. This is when we have this agreement being made. It's amazing. The attributes of God are so, so fascinating. I wish I had a little bit more time. There's one, one more thing that I do want to mention. Um, if I have enough time here, talking about God's mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. You might think those three words are exactly the same. Iniquity is lawlessness. Transgression is obviously you've transgressed the law. And sin is transgression of the law. So is there a difference between those three things? I actually believe that there is, which I'd love to point out. Iniquity is sheer lawlessness, complete disregard, defiance, or willfulness to disregard and set aside the commandments of God. Transgression is sin when you know it was wrong. Defiantly, you knew this was wrong, you were instructed it was wrong, and you transgressed it. And you trespassed against the law. And then when it says sin there, simply, well, when we talk about sin in the scripture, it talks a lot about, especially in Leviticus, unintentional sin. Things you didn't mean to do to your neighbor. So we do have three different levels of sin. Sheer lawlessness and disregard for the commandments of God. Willful transgression and defiance against the instruction that you know was right. And then you have accidental sin. God forgives all of it. And that this is the aspect in which he forgives the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is when we get to the idea of generational sins that sometimes are in our families. And I'll just briefly describe this. This is how I believe, I believe is the way it works within generations. The very first sin that might take place in a generation is iniquity. Somebody in your family has disregarded the law. Of what it is, and they've committed iniquity. Then the next generation, having witnessed and observed the first generation committing iniquity, what they then do in reaction is they then are defiant against whatever they did before. It's the second generation. It's the same thing where it's like somebody made a mistake. A great-grandfather committed a certain sin. And then the next one says, what do they say? They say, I'm never going to treat my family that way. And they're defiant in their opposition to that iniquity. But that still in and of itself is a type of sin. It's a defiance to correction. So the second generation will commit transgression, willful trespass against something. Then the third generation, having heard all the stories of what grandpa used to say and do and what dad used to say and do, witnesses all the different things, the iniquity, the transgression. And they're like, you know what? I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to commit that sin. But you know what happens is genetics. Have you ever had somebody, you do something and then somebody reminds you and you're like, you know who used to do that? Your father used to act that way all the time. Sometimes it's your spouse that might point that out. And man, that's so frustrating when you're specifically trying to not commit the same mistakes that perhaps your father used to do. But you know what you do it? You do it accidentally because it's kind of ingrained in you. It's like you accidentally do and act the same way your father used to act. That's sin. 
it's, it's accidental sin, but it's still sin and it's still committing the same mistake. So then by the time you get to the fourth generation, is that generation going to be healed from the original sin of the, four, of the first generation? Well, that's how I believe there's a logical progression of how generationally we move on from sins and generational sins. That God is forgiving of all of it, but that sometimes it takes three or four generations to get rid of sin. Because you have iniquity, produces transgression, which produces accidental sin. Now, the Lord forgives all of it, but sometimes it takes three or four generations to get rid of it. What an amazing blessing it is that His blessings... His mercy extends to a thousand generations, which there hasn't even been a thousand generations since Abraham. So we're still in the process of receiving all the mercy that God has because we're not even a thousand generations away from Abraham. Many more things that I could talk about at this Torah portion. Uh, my time is running short. I have one note that I also wanted to clarify, something I just found as I was studying that I think is very fascinating and very important for us to understand. Here in Exodus 34 at verse 26, this is where we have one of those times in which it says that you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Many people have talked and argued and and Judaism, Orthodox Judaism says that this is a commandment that we are not to mix meat and dairy. However, what's being talked about in this passage, listen to this, this is interesting. It says this, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil the kid in its mother's milk. So the Lord is talking about bringing first fruits offerings before the Lord. I spoke in a previous portion talking about how we are not to delay in giving to the Lord. Very fascinating here. That word boil in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word bashal, which does literally mean, yes, to boil or to seethe or to cook. It also, in other parts of Scripture, is translated as to ripen. So if you, so one of the things I'm trying to do is bring out something that I noticed with this particular commandment. The way it says, we're talking about the first fruits offerings. We're not to delay in the giving of our first fruit offerings. And let me read it this way. You shall not ripen the young goat with its mother's milk. What am I trying to say there? That it's like we are not to think that perhaps, Lord, oh, let me let me have if I'm supposed to give this young goat as an offering before you. Let me first have it be matured and ripened before I give it to you. We're not to think that way. We're not to delay in giving our offering to the Lord. So one of the things through that understanding, anytime that it's talking about you shall not boil the kid in its mother's milk, one, we're to sanctify life. That just sounds like a perversion of life that you're not supposed to kill the animal in the thing that gives it life. That's one reason. Two, people think that it has to do with eating meat and dairy, which I believe is is a stretch and it does not necessarily mean that. But what instead could represent or could mean is this. We are not to ripen or to have the first fruits offering that belongs to God be delayed by ripening it or nursing it to full to fullness before we give it to God. If God commands us to give it, we are to give it without delay. This is something that we should remember, and this is the balance that we have to strike in all of these things. One, I've already given you some instruction that we have to be patient waiting for God. When he's got a plan and a purpose, we have to wait for him in his timing. But then it's also time that when God has given us instruction and told us to do something, we then are not to delay to do it. We must constantly be listening to what God is telling us. If God is not speaking, wait for him to speak. 
if God has spoken, do not delay to listen. In the same way that Moses, after he heard the attributes of mercy of God, he immediately in haste prayed before the Lord on behalf of the children of Israel so that we might be forgiven for even the grave sin of the golden calf. Let us always be tuned with our ears to the Lord in all things. When he speaks, we listen. And if he's not speaking, we wait and we continue to listen for when he does speak and then we will believe and follow him. God's testing us in all times that when he said something, will we do what he has said? And when it seems like he might be testing us, when he might not be speaking, I heard a great phrase that a teacher is always silent when a test is going on. That when you're sitting in the classroom and there's a test, the teacher's not speaking. So whenever you in your life think you might be being tested or you might be like, Lord, why aren't you speaking? Why can't I hear your voice? What am I supposed to do? You might be in the midst of a test in which the teacher is remaining silent until it is time again for them to speak. And at that point, We must listen and obey. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you for this portion here in the book of Exodus, Father. So many things and so many words of instruction here that you have given to us, Father. I pray that we would be encouraged by all of these words and these stories, Father. May we always turn our heart and our ears to you, Father, in all the things, Lord. There's so many things to study about your word, and we are in awe of your mercies to us, are new to us each and every day, Father. May we always plead for others, Lord, just as Moses pleaded for the children of Israel, that it's not for selfish reasons that perhaps that we might plead and pray to you, Father, but we always on behalf of someone else. Father, forgive us of our sins and our transgressions, for all have sinned and fallen short of your glory, Lord. But may you have nothing but mercy and kindness upon us. Lord, then we pray that you would just forgive us even when we have been completely lawless, Lord, or defiant in our sin, or when we even just make a mistake, Father. But you are forgiving to us in all cases. So we love you, we bless you, and we thank you, Lord, for all of this instruction. May we not make the same mistakes of old, Father, but will we continue to tune our ear to you, listening to everything that you have to say in in all of your instruction to us. We love you, bless you, and thank you on this day. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayalam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home, families will gather all around singing Shabbat. Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 From God, put a smile upon your face. He's 